Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. All right. I'm really excited about today's episode. I got the chance to sit down with Sarah Taylor Demos, who is the founder and CEO of Cora Home, which is based here in Chicago. Cora is building a two-sided SaaS-enabled marketplace for the $77 billion B2B furnishing industry. As Sarah is going to explain in greater detail, Cora's marketplace is going to let designers instantly purchase from trade and retail vendors while allowing vendors to sell their products to designers nationwide. The SaaS tools are going to let vendors and designers manage their teams, their trade accounts, their communications in a digital and a streamlined way. And finally, Cora is going to enable designers to apply to all trade programs with one simple application. And on the other side, Vendors can receive designer applications in a standardized format. Now, I, I really love this company's value prop and the way in which it's solving the numerous industry issues, which Sarah and I discuss at length. I think it's an excellent example of a B2B marketplace that can really revolutionize an archaic industry that hasn't seen innovation in decades. For background, Sarah has spent her career in a variety of digital project management, producer, and strategist positions. She's advised Fortune 500 companies about their digital strategy. She's got years of experience managing teams and building websites, and she's been at the helm of Cora since its inception four years ago. She's also one of the best entrepreneurs I have had the opportunity to work with. And with all that said, here's my conversation with Sarah Taylor Demos. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to have you on as one of the first guests. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. Thanks for having me. How are you holding up on this particularly snowy Chicago day? Oh, it's typical Chicago. You you get used to it. You you become part of the cold weather here in Chicago. So, um, but it's beautiful. It looks like a snow globe outside. Yeah, right now it's not bad. In two months from now, it's going to be a different story. I, I've always said it builds character. I think I don't know about you, but uh, that's always been my defense of the snow in the Midwest. I agree. Uh, before we dive in, though, I just wanted to ask: you just recently became a mom, correct? Actually, for the second time. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. That's so exciting. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yes, I just had another baby girl in November. Um, so lack of sleep. There's already no sleep as an entrepreneur. So it's just adding that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I have two girls and it's great to be a female entrepreneur and, and raising girls because they can see that their mom can do some interesting, amazing things, build product. So really excited for that. Absolutely. They have an awesome, awesome role model for a mom. I, I just have to ask, what will be their roles at Cora uh, right away? Like, how can we put them to work? What do you think? Well, Alicia is probably our cheerleader in chief. She, okay. Yeah, she loves to dance. And then Evangeline, she loves to cry at the moment, but I'm sure she'll grow into her role as we continue with her. Okay, love that. There's no free rides. There's no free rides. Everyone's... uh. All hands on deck. Well, I guess to start this off, um, I'd love it if you could tell us about your background. Uh, I've given listeners a brief overview, but if you could connect the dots for us and tell us what led you to starting Cora. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm from Iowa originally. My dad is a CPA. He got me into computers at an early age. So we actually built a computer with my twin brother and I back in the day. So always been interested in that space. I started studying fashion actually at Iowa State and... Um, Go Cyclones. So thank you. We just had a great full year this year. Really proud yeah. of so, so I got into fashion at Iowa State first. I decided, fr frankly, those people probably aren't my people. 
Um, and you know, being a daughter of a CPA, he was like, you should get into accounting. So I did a completely 360 switch to accounting and finance. And so I graduated from Iowa state, um, college of business, Ivy college of business and started as an accountant. So things kind of started to progress a couple years out of college. I taught myself how to code. And then from there, everything started to change. I got really, really interested in the space. I became a digital project manager. And over time, knew I could build some really interesting things. My last role at Solstice, which is now Ken and Carta, I was in strategy. So as a strategist, I was working with Fortune 500 companies that were typically really dinosaur industry companies that needed a lot of help, especially with um, agile transformation, how to build new products, how to connect with their customers. Um, so thinking about CX, UX, strategy, money, all of that was really fascinating to me. And then a couple years at Solstice, my brother and sister-in-law's house was hit by a tornado. And at that time, it really was an eye-opening experience for me to experience to understand what it was like to rebuild a house. They hired a designer because they didn't have time for that. So during that process, I asked them, did you like your designer? And they said, well, yeah, we really like him, but we can tell his life, his work life behind the scenes is very difficult. So that got me really interested in that. I went to dinner that night and a friend brought an interior designer with her who was another friend. And I, so I started asking her the questions. She, she said, oh, this industry is so dinosaur. It's so backwards and everything is stuck in the 1980s. So this got me hooked, right? Because I'm so interested in these dinosaur companies, how we can move them forward. And certainly it's an interesting industry. So then I looked at how enormous the industry is, $77 billion a year in sales. And I thought I can really do something about this. So uh, that really led me to Cora, sort of the combination of this design mindset the digital and also the curiosity of the industry and the finance and accounting background that I have. So I feel like all those things have really culminated to bring me to this point. No, I think that that makes total sense. And I think, you know, some of the best entrepreneurs always sort of have experience with the problem itself. Um, and, and I think you just have a really interesting background and it almost makes complete sense that Cora would be the problem that you tackled. So I think that's really fascinating. And I think Cora also fits really well into the playbook for, I think, a lot of B2B marketplace businesses where oh, you just have true. a very, very antiquated industry, hasn't seen innovation in decades. Yeah, um, not only that, but it's incredibly fragmented too. If you look at, there's no single dominant player by any stretch, stretch of the imagination. If you look at even a single category, let's say fabric, right? You look at their numbers and there's only one company that might take 5% of that particular category. So overall, super fragmented. So you can compare it to maybe the fashion industry or the restaurant industry and, and you'll get a very close comparison. Absolutely. And was a B2B two-sided marketplace always sort of the original vision for Quora? Is that kind of what you set out to, to create? Definitely not. You know, I think at first thinking about building a business, as I think many entrepreneurs, they, they fall in love with the romanticism of having a B2C company and having that sort of global recognition potentially. So I definitely went that, down that path at first. And then things started to get very real in terms of customer acquisition and just how much that would cost uh, to acquire a customer. And if you look at Wayfair, for example, at, up until this year, because during COVID, sales have really exploded within furnishings because people are, are sitting around looking at their four walls, right? But prior to that, they were actually losing $2.50 on every single sale because the customer acquisition cost was enormous. They'd spend millions each year acquiring customers and then 
let's say they would order a few things and then the customer would forget who you were again and you'd have to reacquire them. So logic started to kick in for me and that we would never be in the black with that type of business. So I started looking into the interior design world and furnishings and I started going to High Point Market, for example, walking the halls, talking to people. And as I talked to these individuals, I I figured out, okay, first of all, I know they're going to come back and purchase on a regular basis. Acquisition cost is going to be lower, super antiquated, very fragmented, lots of old fashioned manual steps. Let's make this better. So on the topic of pivoting, um, I know, you know, it's something that many founders have to face, especially early in the company's life cycle. How would you advise founders go about the process? I, I think it's a really a very challenging decision. And I just would love to hear your sort of advice about how to go about that process and how you navigated those waters. Sure. That's a great question. Pivoting is painful. Um, it's painful financially and mentally because my husband has been very graciously supporting me for the past four years. At times it was difficult. It was very difficult to come to him and, and talk about it. Like, hey, I have to switch the business around. And it's not just a decision you're making on your own unless you are, are, are single, but there could be a team you have to talk to and there could be a morale issue. And, and certainly we, we had that on my team as well. So I think that advice I have for other entrepreneurs is to think through the plan, do some initial tests and talk to people. If you talk about a product, see how people react, but present it to those potential customers in a way where either they're willing to pay for it up front, or you know that other people are potentially doing this, but you could do it better. Or ask them in a, potential customers in a way that you already have low expectations of their answer. Don't ask it in a way where you think you're going to get optimism from it. Beat it out of them that, is this truly something you'd be willing to pay for? Because the nice answer is, yes, of course, I'll be willing to pay for that. And then before you come back to your team or anyone else that you have to convince us of, including investors, right? Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. You have to have a clear plan. Hey, I tested these things. I think these things are true. We got to pivot. This is not working over here. Here's the number. So you really have to come with a strategic, strategic plan up front to get buy-in. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Switching gears a little bit to the history of the interior design industry. Why do you think a, a solution similar to this has not been created up until this point. Why do you think it took so long for this industry to modernize? I think there's a a variety of factors. I think that the first is that there's a lot of jobs sitting on this industry. So a lot of middlemen and the industry is really dominated by those middlemen, showrooms, sales reps, very similar to what was happening, I think, in the car industry as well for a long time and some other industries. Um, And certainly I think those people have a role to play, but so much of their role that they're playing today is around facilitating transactions, which is really inefficient. So it's just the way that the industry has been built up and and the power of those individuals to get to sales as a sales channel for the vendors and the way that the designer can interact and get the information she needs in order to do her job. Another reason why I don't think that a solution has come forward in this space is because it's very fragmented, like I said. I also think that the industry itself is not very tech savvy. So they've No one has been coming from within the industry to come up with a solution for this. And the third big thing, I think, is that the shipping is very complex. So there's a lot of fringe cases around shipping quotes. So if you look at the way that people can transact in the industry, you have to get a quote first for freight or parcel and the combination of thereof. 
very difficult to estimate up front. So the tech around that is is definitely a big build that we're working on. You mentioned one key theme, I think, in many B2B marketplace businesses is this idea that the younger generation or millennials is taking over and sort of taking the reins of these industries. Oh, definitely. And yeah. It's been, I can't say, again, I can't speak for all industries, but is that something you think is definitely playing into this trend we are seeing of more and more of these B2B marketplace businesses uh, such as yours? popping up? Oh, absolutely. If you think about the younger generation, millennial, Gen Z, when you're selling to a business, you're not selling to the business, you're selling to individuals. And those individuals are having experiences outside of doing business with you. And they're buying on Amazon, they're buying in different uh, capacities that they're getting an answer right away and the order goes through right away. And in our industry right now, it can take up to a week for an order to go through. That's unacceptable. It should be instantaneous. It should be very quick. And that's the way that this new generation coming into the industry is expecting things to work. And it is so frustrating for them. So we're really excited to tackle this for them so they can get back to the work they love, which is design work. And on the supply side and the demand side of this marketplace, who are your primary targets on the furnishing vendor side? Is you know there a specific kind of furnishing vendor you guys are targeting? Any kind of characteristics that you would say they identify with? Yeah, for sure. Well, I think also in the demand versus supply side, I mean, it's an interesting concept also just in B2B marketplaces. Yeah. Um, you know, tackling that for our specific industry, I think a lot of my competitors and other people in the space have been truly just primarily focused on the designer. Whereas we think that the vendor really has the greatest value to bring to the industry, how to get them more modernized. And some of them are very modernized at this point and tech savvy, but it's getting the rest of the industry to come up to that level. So we're really focused on the vendor side quite a bit, but obviously in two-sided marketplaces, you have to work on both sides at the same time. So in the vendors, we're really focused on transitioning to scale businesses. So they are in a position where, okay, we have product market fit. Now it's just time to scale this. How do we get bigger? How do we grow? So they're in this really weird position. So that's our bread and butter kind of vendor. There are definitely some larger vendors out there that are $50 million plus, but really focused um, somewhere between a half million to $10 million in sales each year. And how do we keep growing that on behalf of our vendors with the designers we work with? And then you were just talking about the designers, what their expectations are. So yeah, we're focused on millennial, Gen Z type designers coming in. And what's really interesting, Matt, is in our industry is that, yeah, you could have larger design firms, but who's actually doing the purchasing and all of the operations? It's the younger designers. Right. So um, yeah, they could. there could be some Gen X principles that own the design firm. But again, who's doing the purchasing? It's their staff. Right. And I think you mentioned, and this is a concept I, I just think is fascinating. You do have kind of a dual mandate. Um, you know, you're not just going after one customer with your acquisition strategy. The goal is to, in most B2B marketplaces, I think, build out a, a very robust supply side so that there's just ample liquidity throughout the marketplace. Is, is that sort of the strategy you guys took as well? Yeah, so I think that's an absolute must. If you don't have the vendors that the designers want to purchase from, well, then they're going to go somewhere else. And we hear frequently from designers, well, you have to have, quote, all of my vendors on your site or I'm not going to come there because they really want this one-stop shop feeling because if they don't have that, then they might as well just go to the vendors individually and then our service becomes a moot point. So yeah, we're working to get as many vendors on the platform as possible. How long did the customer discovery process take for you guys where you have such a great focus 
and I think it is it's really important at the stage you guys are at. But how did that sort of initial customer discovery process go? Did you first take a larger approach and view all interior design firms, all vendors as potential customers? How did you sort of narrow down to your target your target demo? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's actually a really great series of books called Strategizer. I don't know if um, you've heard of that, Matt, but there's definitely some steps you can take to think about the unique value proposition of pains, gains, and tasks. So thinking about the jobs to be done. And then we wrote those out for every single type of user, so potential customer. So we segmented them, we thought about them because we we segmented based on our knowledge of the industry and then thought about each of them and how they would approach our product. And from there, it was very obvious where we could make a huge impact. So in the the very, very new vendors, we probably can't make much of an impact because they need to grow their brand. They need to, there's some things they need to do to build up their business. And for the very, very large vendors as well, we, they already have a huge customer list. They're already a machine. I think over time, as we grow, we can turn their heads, but really our impact is there. On the designer side as well, we did the same thing. And we think that it's the designers who are tech savvy, they're open to things. And it's not just that one generation, right? I think it's psychographics of these business owners. How do they approach things? Are they open to new ideas of how to do business? And I think that psychographic is really important to think about. Absolutely. Absolutely turning towards your specific value prop versus the status quo. How did you go about deciding on, and could you walk us through some of the differentiations in the unit economics, specifically commissions that are charged on your platform, I guess, versus the status quo? And what do you think allows you to sort of charge what you guys are are going to be charging? Yeah, for sure. There's huge commissions that are charged by the sales reps and also by showrooms typically between 20 to 35%. So the average is around 25%. So you're thinking about showrooms who have brick and mortar or presence, right? So they have overhead costs, they have staff to pay. So they need to be taking in quite a bit more money. So these are multi-line showrooms that, that essentially they wrap for a bunch of different vendors. And so we look at that and we think that's really, really high. And as we're talking to vendors, it's such a huge pain point for them because they feel like they can't make any money. They're spending a ton of money on sampling or customer service issues or updates to the designers and then certainly the commission itself. So it's a lose-lose proposition and things have changed so much in the way that designers want to purchase that it was just time. So yeah, we're really about... Our focus is about automating. So that's really about our value proposition is really surrounding the designer vendor purchasing experience with automation, because right now everything's pretty much done over email, which is really, really inefficient. And if I'm an interior design firm, could you walk me through the end-to-end process for signing up for Cora? So what will it look like for me as an interior design firm? Absolutely. So yeah, you can, right now we have a wait list open. Uh, vendors are about ready to join Cora. So we're excited about that. So once we get them onboarded and products loaded, which we're in the process of doing right now, designers can come on and join. From there, you come on, you fill out your personal information, you start your first project, and then you select tags for the style or defi- and defining characteristics for that project. We give you suggestions. What's unique about our business compared to, I think, some of our competitors who are truly acting as a middleman is that we're trying to be this conduit for the industry. 
so that they can have a direct relationship with each other. We're just trying to, again, automate all of those processes. When they come on, then they can start shopping for products and then order through us. As we continue to evolve the product, then a lot more of the automation will go through. So as I was talking about the shipping, making that more instantaneous so you know exactly how much it's going to cost and then being able to purchase and get those updates from the client or excuse me, from your vendor right away. So we're really excited about the progress we're gonna, we've made so far and then where we're going in the product as well. And if I'm a designer and um, I have a list of vendors that I do business with and not all of them are on Quora just yet, how easy is it for me to bring my vendors to the Quora platform or to, to refer them? Yeah, great question. So right now, actually, every single designer that we know of is keeping a list of vendors in a spreadsheet. So our job and Quora too is to create this vendor list for you. So not only our vendors, but being able to bring in the names of the vendors you already do business with. So you can keep a complete list there and sort by um, and filter by categories and other information you need to know so you can get to those vendors quickly. What's interesting about our business too is that you can sign up for a trade program directly on our site. So it feels very much and mimics what's going on in real life, what's going on in the industry, which is unique. So you feel like you have this direct relationship with them, even though, again, our job is to create this efficiency of transaction. So in terms of we've talked about the history of Quora, we've talked about the present day state of the business. What's next for Quora in the next you know 12 to 18 months? Yeah, sure. Quora is really focused, first of all, in building our own marketplace. So being a very strong supporter of our vendors that we're working with today, getting liquidity, of course, for those vendors, and then providing great automation services to the designers that we work with. We know that's going to take quite a bit of time with development and certainly funds to get there, but we're excited about the path ahead. And the vision, of course, is to get to complete automation. So it is everything from okay, I know that this product is in stock. I'm going to purchase right away. The order goes out to the vendor. You get acknowledgement right away. This is all electronic, right? This is what should be happening. And then you can get order statuses up and back to your dashboard on Quora. So you can know exactly what's going on with every single order for your projects. But we think that there's so much more we can do in terms of integrating with the entire industry. So everything from shop, like Stitch Room, for example, being able to to send fabric directly over and get an order from Stitch Room to make your pillows, being able to order swatches from Material Bank to getting the shipping integrations. And then also the ultimate is being able to integrate potentially with project management tools that exist in the industry now, and also as another sales channel for us. So we think that by becoming potentially this middle layer of the industry, we're going to be able to automate everything in the industry and bring everyone together. And that's exactly why Quora um, has its name, because we want to be the core of the entire furnishings industry. Love that. I was going to ask about the name. So you just uh, took that question right off my list. Um, and I guess last question on the business, the long-term vision you have in, in 10 years, where do you see Cora's place in the interior design industry? Sure. I think that if we continue on this path where I think the integrations and the ability to bring data together into one place, as we work toward that vision and goal, then we can become the largest core business of this industry, bringing together the fragmented nature of the industry. I think there's unlimited potential for us to not only help the vendors that we work with, but also to bring efficiencies to the designers. Right now, I think that the industry is struggling because of this. And so if we can solve this problem for the industry, not only is it going to thrive, designers will be able to provide even greater service to their clients. And that's really the ultimate goal is that the end clients can have beautiful homes 
workspaces, hotels, restaurants, and we got it to them faster than ever. I think that excites a lot of people. I think you guys are solving a massive problem in an incredibly large industry. And it always amazes me that these almost $100 billion industries are still operating in in the 1990s. Turning our attention, though, yeah. towards the Windy City. Um, <laughs> just curious, I know that you mentioned you went to Iowa State, and this is obviously your home, but why did you guys decide to incorporate in Chicago? Is it well-known as an interior design hub? So we have the Merchandise Mart here in Chicago, which I think is the most concentrated mart, what we call a mart. Um, there's seven different marts around the United States. There's one in Hollywood, there's one in New York, Miami, and there's one in Texas. So there's a few around the country. Atlanta is another one. Chicago, not only do we have the Merchandise Mart, which teaches a lot about how the industry works, we do have another trade show here called Neocon, but there's some real advantages to being in Chicago. Not only it's lower cost of, of living, but also there's incredible tech talent here in the Midwest. Great people, super smart people. I think the Midwest is sometimes known as flyover country, which is ridiculous. I mean, Chicago is a huge metropolitan area. It's the third largest city in the United States. And so there's massive opportunity to invest in companies in Chicago. Certainly, I love the city for various reasons, but I think as being a business owner, certainly our taxes in Chicago are horrid. But it's the people and the cost of living and many other factors I think go into being a successful business in Chicago. And on top of that, I think that a lot of businesses in Chicago are and startups are focused on revenues as opposed to, I think, companies on the coast who are a little bit more focused on, you know, the B2C aspect or the tech itself rather than making money. And I think that's sometimes a result of what you know, investors uh, like to see, I guess, with a, which I think is a differentiator of the VC landscape here. Yeah, um, definitely. What was it? What was that process for you raising capital in Chicago? Did you look elsewhere by chance? Did you look to any of the coasts? And what was the process here? And what were some of your takeaways? Yeah, for sure. I think in the Midwest, again, uh, VCs here are very focused on have you had any sales? And I think that's really important. So raising capital in general, obviously, it's very difficult. There's a lot of meetings to have, telling your story. Um, many, many times there's a lot of letdowns, but there's a lot of successes too. And so it, just like any other entrepreneur story, it's, it was difficult. And the difference between Midwest and the coast is I think that, first of all, there's not as many VC funds here in Chicago. So if if in the Midwest in general. So I think that the deal flow, if you capture it, I mean, there's many companies here in the Midwest. And so the deal flow, I think would be greater per VC firm. But, you know, it's a very different story talking to someone on the coast as opposed to Midwest. I think the valuations are quite higher on the coast than they are here. And so there's just a very different story in the way that you talk to people in Silicon Valley. It's more focused, I think, on the technology. Who's in your team? Do you have a CTO? What's your overall vision and story? Again, Midwest is more about the real, give me the facts, ma'am. Are you going to make any revenues? So anyway, all in all, it was challenging. And I'm just so thankful to have Manifold as a primary investor for this round. It's been an incredible experience. And I know everybody has absolutely loved working with you. So I think it's uh, it's definitely uh, reciprocated. Thank you. I, 
I do, I just was curious as well, have there been any organizations, memberships that, that you belong to that have helped you develop as a founder over the past four years? Sure. I was at 1871 for some time. That did give me some interesting exposure, not only to classes and people and being able to have this camaraderie and feeling like you're not alone, you know, as an entrepreneur, which can be a lonely ride of feeling like you're on a roller coaster for the first year. And then you understand that this roller coaster never stops. And then you understand how to uh, maintain your composure on the roller coaster, which is really an interesting concept. And then there was a, a, a female focused incubator at 1871 that really helped as well. Overall, it's just been the experience of trial and error. I think that has really gotten me to this point. It hasn't been a, a single entity or experience, but through trial and error and some failures, I think we've gotten ourselves to this point and I'm so proud of where we are. Looking back on your career, what do you think drove you to really take this entrepreneurial journey? Um, you know, it, it's something, it, it's obviously, it's not for everybody, but I do think there's something really unique and motivational about the people that do take the leap. So I guess for you, was starting a company something you always wanted to do? Did you always say, you know, one day I want to be a founder? Yes, actually. I think that having a role model, role models really in my life really made a difference. I think everyone has a different moment in their life when they're an entrepreneur and they say, yes, I want to do that. I, I'm willing to take the risk of it. So my grandparents were farmers and that's owning a business. And so I remember my grandpa telling me how proud he was before he passed that I had started a business. He was very proud. Um, and he's like, whether you fail or whatever happens, I'm proud of you. And then my dad owned um, CPA firms and he recently exited on his CPA firms in, in Iowa. So I'm proud of him and watching him be a business owner and knowing the massive hours that he had to put in, I knew what it was going to be like, you know, the ups and downs. I watched him go through issues with partners and different clients, different problems with the business, like the basement flooding, whatever. <laughs> There's so many things that would come up. And so I knew I was getting myself into, I think that's something that all entrepreneurs need to look at and, and understand that life as a business owner in general is very difficult. Also very difficult as an entrepreneur, knowing that you need to raise capital in order to expand and hopefully become profitable. And so I think if you can look at all of those problems and you still are so ridiculously passionate and almost crazy, you're ready. But I knew at a young age that I wanted to do something like this just in watching my dad and knowing um, what he went through. Well, I think the example that you're setting and that you followed from your dad, I think it's safe to say there might be two more entrepreneurs in the Taylor Demos household someday soon. <laughs> I think it's safe to bet on. Evangeline and Elisa will hopefully be business owners one day. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. I'd love to just ask a few more. Um, I'm always curious about highly driven, highly motivated people. What, what for you, what is the first hour and the last hour of your day look like? I know, I know it's, it's probably, uh, it's probably changed over the years as, as more and more kids have come into the picture. And I'm sure that'll be a big part of the answer, but still curious. <laughs> sure. Um, the first part of my day, I wake up if I lately haven't been getting enough sleep, but if I get enough sleep, then I'm up exercising for the first half hour of the day and really thinking about what I have to tackle. So to me, getting in some exercise is really important because it, first of all, gives me some energy for the day, but it also leaves me feeling focused. But immediately after that, I have to run upstairs because granted, one of my girls is crying, you know, to get out, to get out of bed. Um, I need something, I need milk or whatever. So then the chaos ensues for the next couple of hours. <laughs> 
I think at the end of the day is so much more important. Of course, exercise is important, but the last hour of the day, I really look at my to-do list. So I really visualize what I have to do for the next day. And that honestly helps me sleep if I don't have everything written down. And if I don't visualize the next day, then I cannot sleep as well. So that's been a godsend for me. I think the I think keeping lists for me it also helps as well. So uh, I'm glad to hear somebody else is uh, utilizing that as an anxiety reducer before bed. And then lastly, any books, podcasts, lecture series, anything that you have found to be very beneficial for you in your development as a founder. Sure, um, I do think as I mentioned earlier, the Strategizer series is a great one. So you can think through the unique value proposition, the Lean Canvas how you are going to position your business to be different from others and better than other businesses. Another book that I think is completely underrated that people haven't heard of is called The 10 Types of Innovation. So you can think about 10 different ways that businesses form and how they can differentiate. So it could be price, it could be technology. So there's a bunch of other things that you can bring to light using that book to understand how you can differentiate your business compared to others. Oh, there's so many podcasts to potentially mention, but how I built this, of course, is one of my favorites. I'm an avid reader. And uh, so, yeah, I love many different forms, but those are my favorites. Well, Sarah, Thank you so much for coming on. This has been awesome. You were definitely one of the first people I wanted to have on and speak with. Oh, thank um, you so much. And if people want to learn more about Cora and more about you and you know follow your story, where can they find you guys? Great. Please visit CoraHome.com, C-O-R-A-H-O-M-E.com. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. I'll include those links in the show notes. Thanks again, Sarah. Cannot wait to have you on again and uh, stay warm out there. Thank you. You too. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode. Special thanks to Kevin Daly for his help with this podcast.